Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Amen and good morning. Good to see you guys today. I am not Charlie, in case you were wondering. Uh, And that's not Andy either. Right? No, okay. I didn't know if he had like a drastic haircut that I wasn't aware of. Um, No, so today if you were expecting to see the dynamic duo of Charlie and Andy, uh, you get me. You get me. Uh, I am the student pastor. My name's Nick. I've been up here a few times before. Charlie uh, texted me yesterday morning um, telling me that he was sick and that I might need to step in. Uh, I was a little annoyed because honestly, if he texted me on Friday, it would have made my life way easier because I did nothing on Friday. I sat and did very, 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 very little. I think I took a nap. Uh, I probably played with my kids, but that's about it. And if he had texted me on Friday, I'd have had all this time. I would have plenty of time. But of course, he texted me on Saturday where we have like birthday parties and nutcracker rehearsals and all kinds of stuff. So you're going to get what you get. All right. I can promise this. It's going to be short. All right. So at the very least, you're getting out of here on time. All right. Um, So, you know, I work with students all the time. And, you know, one of the things they are fearful of the most, the thing that they hate the most sometimes is failure. They're terrified of it. It's this thing that sort of sits in front of them, constantly bugging them, constantly pestering them, constantly saying, I might show up like just, it's, it's there. They're always worried about it. And I feel like it's possible that we as adults maybe have the same sort of fears and, fa- and, and, and I think we might be scared of it as well. I think it might sit there pestering us, pushing us to say, you don't want me to be part of your life. You don't want me to be part of your life. And what I want to show us today and remind us is that failure, it's going to happen. There's little to nothing you can do about it. It is absolutely going to happen. You know, I, uh, we were at the Argyle High School homecoming game the other night and uh, my, my daughter was sitting there, they were winning, our guy was winning, and my daughter looks at me and says, well, I guess the curse is broken. I was like, what are you talking about? And a little, I find out, like, we'd gone to a lot of games over the last year or so, and every time we go to something, the team that we root for loses. And we don't know why, and Kate, my daughter, thought it was her fault. She thought her presence was causing the teams to lose, in a silly way. And, uh, you know, last night, I guess, the, the Friday night, the curse was broken. Um, but there's this curse that seems to kind of follow us around. Like my wife, for example, she can't handle balloons. We have small children, and so every birthday that we go to involves balloons. So when my wife goes to pick up balloons, I don't know that I've ever seen her return with the amount of balloons that she bought to the event. There will always be one or two or all that fly away. It's so real that even yesterday we showed up at a birthday party for another kid that we didn't bring balloons to. And as soon as we pulled into the parking lot, that four balloon just floated up into the sky. She just, her presence caused the balloon to to fly. Honey, I'm sorry. It's true. But you do love balloons. And, you know, I, uh, 
I had a similar feeling when I was in high school and even in college. Like the, the team, the soccer teams that I played on, I know when you look at me, you think collegiate athlete, but um, just so you just really get a good glimpse of it. Uh, I played soccer most of my life and, you know, I went to, I wrote it all down because there's so many I forgot exactly. There's two high school championship games, two conference finals in college, and a half dozen or so select and rec league tournaments that I played in. Never won a single one of them. Second, third, fourth place, never hit that first place mark. I played since I was five years old, all the way up through my senior year in college. The last game I ever played was a conference final for my, my college team lost. Never did I ever get that W. And it felt really real that next year after college when that team without me won. They did win. It took me getting off the team for them to succeed. It was very frustrating. And you know, when I was a kid, we got real close to this one. We were like, it was like three games and we were winning and it was about to be the next game. And then a volcano erupted and we had to evacuate the country we were living in. I just can't win. I can't win. And you might think that with each crushing loss that I experienced that it didn't feel so bad each time that, you know, by the end of my career playing soccer at the last game when we lost, you would think, well, what did I expect? But no, it always ended up with me on my knees, crying a little bit, sitting on that field, wondering what I could have done differently. And really, for all of us, when failure keeps finding us, I think we all sort of end up at this spot, wondering what I could have done differently to make this failure go away. You see, my grandfather, for most of his life, was a very, very troubled man. Um, he was a pastor when he was very young. He was one of those southern kind of fire and brimstone pastors where it seemed like every sermon culminated in, if you don't do this thing, whatever his main point was, you're going to go to hell. It was just everything ended with, you're going to go to hell, and there was always fire, and there was always anger and yelling. And, but, you know, people liked it. They showed up, and he was a relatively successful pastor in, in the area where he lived, and um, he was doing well. And then something went wrong in the church. They didn't like him anymore, and, you know, they kind of burned him. They sort of just ousted him and brought in this new guy, and he felt really hurt and broken and like he was just a complete failure. And, uh, you know, he had a choice. That was sort of that crossroads point in his life where he could say, okay, I'm going to let this failure push me to greater things. I'm going to look back and say, what could I have done differently? And I'm going to move forward in a positive way. But that's not the route he took. He took a different route. And that route led him to drinking away their paychecks and having multiple affairs and beating on his children and his wife and just letting all of that anger build up and explode around all the people in his life. And, you know, they... They had a really tough time getting children. My, my grandmother had at least seven miscarriages before um, they did. And after that last one, they kind of decided, we're done. I can't do this anymore. And that's when they heard from a family in the church that there was uh, these three boys that had been abandoned by their family and they needed to be adopted. And my grandmother said, sign me up. So all of a sudden, they had these three boys in the house. They were difficult. They were not easy. They had literally been abandoned in their home for at least three days before people found them. And the next day they were in my grandmother's house with her husband. Um, and then they got pregnant with my mom. And so all of a sudden they've got four kids and his life is falling apart. And 
eventually, it took about three or four years, but eventually my grandmother decided it was enough and they left. And that was when the craziest night of my mother's life ever happened, where my, my grandfather was chasing them around with a shotgun and screaming terrible things and was threatening to kill them and all these terrible things. It was just awful. You know, failure really began to define him, and it stuck with him for most of his life, as it did with his boys. Because here's the thing. Failure finds us all. The more we fear it, the more it will define us when it finds us. The more we fear it, the more it will define us when it finds us. Let's look at two big names in the Bible, Jonah and Jeremiah. Jonah and Jeremiah. You know, Jonah is one of those stories that even people outside of the church tend to know something about. They may not know what they know, but they tend to know that we here in the church talk about this guy that lived in a fish for three days and They've got a general sense of that story. There's a lot to that story. And so I want to kind of unpack the story of Jeremiah and Jonah in the sense of which one of them failed and which one of them succeeded. Okay, so let's look at Jonah first. Uh, We're going to read the first three verses. Um, It appears that Jonah is some sort of prophet, that he knows the voice of the Lord in some way. And so we find ourselves here at the beginning of Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise! Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. You're going to see me get visibly frustrated with this story because it bothers me. Jonah is crazy. Jonah thinks that he can actually leave the presence of the Lord by getting on some boat and moving to some city that maybe God doesn't heard of. I don't understand his, his plan here. I think maybe it's just to bluff God out, like just to keep pushing and pushing and say, if I keep going and keep going, you're probably going to just leave me alone, right? You're probably just going to stop and go ask somebody else. Jonah's not the only prophet around. God could easily ask somebody else. So Jonah keeps trying to leave, and he keeps trying to run, and then, then in, in later in this chapter, he's on this boat, and there's a storm, and it's fo- falling apart, and the people are freaking out, and Jonah said to them in verse 12, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Jonah would have rather died than obey. He would have preferred to be thrown into a raging sea and deal with whatever terrors lie there than to stop and say, God, I'm going to go. God, I will obey. I will do it. Please don't hurt these people. Please don't hurt me. I will go do whatever you need to do. That's all he had to do. He chose not to. He would prefer to die. Then it gets really fun. I don't know if any of you have ever been to like a fish market or maybe you just know the smell of fish and you can recall it in your, in your mind, but it is a, 
offensive odor. It's not pleasant. There are no car air freshener hangies in the shape of a fish that smell like fish. Nobody puts fish oil around their neck to smell good to people around them. This is not something that we like the smell of. It is understood that if you say something smells like fish, it's not something that you're interested in. And Jonah, Jonah gets the pleasure of living inside a fish for three days. And here's the part about the story that I think is ridiculous. It wasn't like God said to him, Jonah, you're going to be in this fish for three days. He didn't say anything. There was no voice from on high saying, Jonah, sit in this fish for three days and then you can come out. Jonah was going to sit in that fish until he obeyed or died. Jonah was going to sit in that fish as long as it took him to say, fine, God, I'll go. For me, and probably most of us in this room, I don't know, a second, one minute at the most would have been enough of inside, living inside the digestive tract of an aquatic animal. I don't need three days for that. I don't care what it is that's on the other side of that. It's not going to take me three days to give in. But Jonah is the king of stubbornness. Nobody is more stubborn than this man. Three days inside the stomach of, an, of a fish. And finally, he says, okay, I'll go. That is some hardcore disobedience. He's pretty good at it. So finally, the, the, the fish pukes him up on the land, and he gets up, and I assume he cleans himself off, and he goes in to Nineveh. Nineveh, the capital of a, of a nation called Assyria, that will one day take Israel away from its land. Jonah is called to go and preach the word of God, preach the love and mercy of a, of a loving creator that wants them to, to repent and, and, and come into right relationship with him. That's what he's called to do. And so here's Jonah's big, beautiful message for the people of Nineveh. It's so precious. You're going to get your tissues out because this is real sweet. He says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Yeah, that's it. That's his whole prophetic message. There's no mention of God. No mention of mercy. No, here's what you need to do to, to get out of this mess. It's just, hey guys, you're screwed. You're going to die. In 40 days, this whole city's going to be gone. That's his whole message. That's his de declaration for the people of Nineveh is you're going to die. I don't know if you've ever worked for someone like this, but I used to work for this guy named Jim, and he was not good. He was, he was a teacher, but he really wasn't. He was really bad at what he did. It was very bumbly and fumbly, and you could hardly ever figure out what he was trying to teach you. But for some reason, it worked. People heard things that I couldn't understand where they heard him from. I saw lives changed. I saw the Holy Spirit move in the presence of this guy. It was ridiculous. And it was, you know, a better man probably would have called it beautiful and wonderful, but me and my immaturity and my continued immaturity, I found it frustrating and annoying. And Jonah gives this terrible sermon to these people who need so much more, and it works. It works. The capital of Assyria, one of the greatest enemies of Israel, turns and believes in God because of whatever it was that Jonah said. It's amazing, it's, it's a miracle, but man, did it have nothing to do with Jonah. Because we find out later uh, in chapter 4, Jonah says this, 
after seeing the success of his, of his ministry in, in Assyria, seeing that God did not smite them, and in fact, they are now flourishing and believing in God, this is Jonah's reaction. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. These are things that he doesn't like about God, by the way. Let me say them again. Uh, a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah hated these people so much that he's angry that God saved them and would rather die than live in a world where God is merciful. That's Jonah, one of the most successful prophets of his day, a man who hated God's mercy, couldn't stand his love, was frustrated to no end and tried to flee so that God would not save a people that needed to be saved. Jonah saved and then Jonah preached a terrible sermon and God saved them. But Jonah was not successful. Jonah failed. Then there's Jeremiah. Jeremiah heard God's call when he was young, when he was a youth, and he was reluctant, but he obeyed. God called Jeremiah to tell both the southern and the northern kingdom to repent and return to God. And he did this for many, many, many years, basically his whole life. Here's an example of a sermon from Jeremiah, a message that Jeremiah gave to his people from God. In Jeremiah 3, 12 to 14, he says, it says this, Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you one from a city and two from a family and I will bring you to Zion. See, now that's a clear prophetic message. Return, faithless Israel. I will not look on you in anger, for I'm merciful. Acknowledge your guilt that you've rebelled against me and that you have not obeyed me and return for I'm your master. These, this, is, this, is, this is clear. Israel, you've screwed up. Repent, ask forgiveness, and God will bring you back. Not, hey, Israel, you're going to die. Hey, Israel, you're going you're gonna to be taken away. It's, hey, Israel, we can fix this. Here's how we do it. This is a clear-cut prophetic message. It's, it's, it's great, but it doesn't work. Dozens and dozens of times, Jeremiah proclaims a very similar message, and he doesn't do it in just, you know, just by saying things. He does lots of things. He sang songs. He spoke in poetry. He delivered tough love speeches and even gave public demonstrations of how God was going to punish them if they didn't obey. But it made no difference, and Judah and Israel were both taken away from their land. However, Jeremiah was faithful. He obeyed. He knew the voice of God. And this is important. It wasn't his fault that the people did not listen. Just like it wasn't Jonah's fault that the people did. 
See, Jeremiah learned to love those people more than he ever thought possible. You read the book of Lamentations. It's all about how his heart is broken for the people of Israel and how he wishes he could have done something more, how he wishes that God would have jumped in and saved them, but, they, but he didn't. You see, failure is this very sharp, two-edged sword. On one side, it can just wreck and destroy us and define us to the point where we might never recover. And on the other hand, if we seek approval of God rather than man, that failure can bring us closer to him. Because here's the truth about failure. It can save us or we can let it consume us. It can make us bitter or it can lead us to salvation. We see this very clearly in Luke 23. At the end of Jesus' life, he's dying on a cross and there's two men next to him, one on the other side. And they begin to have a conversation. It goes like this. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we, indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Both of these men had failed to the point of being executed for whatever that failure was. One of them allowed that failure to consume him and define him and bring out anger and frustration against everyone around him. And the other allowed that, that, that failure to draw him into salvation, to draw him into understanding that he is in need of something greater than himself. If we're focusing, if we're focusing on our failures, we are not focusing on Christ. Because I'll say it again, failure finds us all. And the more we fear it, the more it will define us when it finds us. And if we focus on those failures, there's no way that we're focusing on Christ. You know, my, I told you about my grandfather, my grandmother was the exact opposite of her husband. She had more patience and love in her little finger than her husband had in his whole body. However, if you're to look at her life and measure it by the standards that we typically put on people, whether or not she was successful or not, as far as you could tell, she was a massive failure. She was broke, poor. She had a broken family. Those three sons that she adopted, all of them became drug addicts and jailbirds. Two of them died in prison. The other died alone in a car somewhere. We didn't even know where he was. And if you look at that and say whether she was successful or not, the obvious answer seems to be that, well, she, she was a failure. But here's the problem. At the end of her life, and, and every day before that that I knew her, she was the most joy-filled, compassionate caring and God-obsessed person I've ever known in my entire life. And if anyone had a right to be bitter, angry, and consumed by failure, it was her. Nothing ever seemed to work right for her. But I'd never seen anybody love God more than I saw from this woman. I've never seen anybody so devoted to their Savior than I saw from this woman. And you know, we've, we've talked a lot about failure, so I'm going to end by talking a little bit about success. Because we cannot measure our success 
by looking at our exterior accomplishments because, to be honest, it's real easy to fake those. It's real easy to appear successful in the eyes of people. If you're seeking to look successful in the eyes of man, it's real simple. Get the right clothes, get the right house, have the right whatever, and it's gonna, your people are just going to assume that you're a success. But when we measure our success by God's standards, to be honest, it's kind of impossible to really fake that. You can say the right words and look the part, but to be honest, an apple tree can't grow pineapples. The fruit that comes out of your life will be the evidence of whether or not you truly are living the way God has called us to live, living in relationship with him. You have to ask yourself questions like, do I truly love the Lord with all my heart and mind? Am I daily taking up my cross and following him? Am I seeking a more Christ-like heart? Do I truly love my neighbor? And guys, we can't assume that these types of success will just come with age or maturity or the right amount of attendance records at church or small group. Like, this kind of success is not looking for you. You have to go after it. You need to bang on the door of God's house and beg him for these things. You know, I, I have so many memories of my grandmother, but the one that just can't get out of my head is constantly, every day I saw her, she spent time on her knees in front of her bed in prayer. She banged on the doors of God's house asking him for the things that she truly needed. These things. Success is not out there hoping it bumps into you. This kind of success is not ready to just be grabbed. It's hiding. It's a treasure buried in a field. And unless you're ready to plunk down all that you have to go and buy that field so you can have that treasure that God has for you, it's not going to happen. You will not accidentally find yourself living this kind of life, devoted completely to God, taking up your cross every day and following him. It is something that you have to build. It takes time and energy and effort and love and passion and all these things. It's real easy to stumble into success here in life. It happens to people all the time. But when it comes to success through God's eyes, it's not going to happen by accident. You have to go after it with a club. Here's my last point, and it's silly. But remember, I am a youth pastor. So, remember that movie Mary Poppins, the original one? There's that scene where they're standing outside the park and there's all these chalk drawings on the ground and they're there with Dick Van Dyke, whatever his name was in the movie, I can't remember. And they're standing there and they try to jump into the paintings like something's going to happen. But nothing happens. They jump into them and it's just nothing. Some chalk puffs up in the air and that's it. And then they look to Mary Poppins and she's like, fine. So she goes over, she grabs their hand, she jumps with them, and they enter into this magical land of cartoons and songs and fun and craziness, a world that they never would have experienced otherwise. And it's a really cool, just fun, silly image. But when I think of it in context with this, it reminds me of something very important. To truly find that treasure buried in a field, to walk through the eye of that needle You can't do it by yourself. You have to be holding the hand of God, the Father who loves you, that will take you into worlds that you never thought possible. 
that will take you into a world that no matter what's happening around you, whether you're broke, poor, rich, have the right car, have no car, whatever you got, you will find joy and compassion and love for the world around you despite your exterior circumstances. That's the kind of world that God promises us. That no matter what's going on around us, whether we're failing over here, succeeding over here, if we desire him and we walk through life with him and we bang down the doors of his house and say, God, I want what you have and build that relationship, you will find yourself jumping into these drawings of crazy, beautiful, wonderful experiences filled with compassion and love for God that you never thought possible. Failure finds us all. If you let it define you, it will. But if you let God define you, you'll be able to go into things that you never thought possible. I'll leave you with this last little image that I love so much about my grandmother. When my mom was there with her when she was dying, she had some kind of cancer and her body was filling with fluid where she just couldn't really move. And she'd been like that for about a week and a half, just laying in her bed. She could kind of open her eyes. She could kind of say stuff, but that was pretty much it. And it was early in the morning. My mom doesn't know why, but she just woke up. And she looked over at my grandmother, and her eyes were wide open, staring right in the air. And she lifted her arms as high as she could. Hadn't done this in a while. Hadn't been able to move. She lifted up these fluid-filled arms and just held them up in the air. And she started singing some song that my mom had never heard and she didn't understand what it was. And then she dropped her arms and she passed away. It's this beautiful image of a woman who by all intents and purposes was a complete failure in life. Had nothing. But in the end, she got everything. I want to end like that. I want a life lived so devoted to God that nothing else, none of my exterior whatevers matter. And that no matter what, at the end, I'm going to lift my arms up and I'm going to be greeted by a God who wants me. No matter who I am, He wants me. Let me pray for us. God, though we fail, though we fall, though we're broken, though we are incomplete you want us you desire us and you make a way for us to be in connection with you in relationship with you God that we would see that way every day that you would illuminate for us the paths that we need to take that draw us closer to you God that you would open that door and give graciously of the gifts that you have of love and compassion and kindness and steadfast God, all those things. Bless us, this church, with your mercy. Though we don't deserve it, God, bring us closer to you that when we leave this place, we might be a light shining in a dark place. And God, as we each find failure, let it not define us, but rather remind us of how you define us as loved, wanted, and forgiven. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Would you stand with us?